0: Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Church Madison, community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. We're in a really special season as a church plant, um, where on July 1st we will become fully planted. Yay! Which means that uh, I've talked about this a lot. I'll talk about it again. But if you're here for the first time, uh, There's other stuff I can point you to. I'm not going to go into everything right now, but we're becoming fully self-sustaining financially uh, and fully self-governing as a church. We're a newer church, and we're kind of uh, going out on our own. We're we're going out of the nest of other churches who have been supporting us. Um, And so we're using this season, these couple weeks leading up to July 1st, to lay a foundation for how we think about money, how we think about governing the church and caring for it, how we make decisions about the church, And to do that, we're digging into the Bible's concept of stewardship. So last week, uh, if you weren't here last week, I would recommend listening to that because these next two sermons build off of what we talked about. Um, But we thought about the biblical theology of stewardship in the gospel, and we arrived at three main points about stewardship, mainly from the book of Genesis and throughout the rest of scripture. Number one, what is a steward? Someone who has God-given what? Dominion over an area of creation. Um, what does a steward do? A steward preserves what they, what they have been put in charge of, and we talked about those words, work and keep. And then a steward grows what they are put in dominion over. So we talked about be fruitful and multiply in Genesis. And now we're going to take that framework, those three truths, and apply them to money, to the almighty dollar. What does it mean that we are stewards of our financial resources? Like I said last week, um, the theology of stewardship is endlessly applicable and beautiful, but it is particularly pertinent to money, and it is particularly relevant to this season of our church life, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, two caveats before I dive into all this. First, I will not be focusing on giving or tithing to the church only. This will include that. Uh, But that's not what I'm going after this morning. Rather, I want us to think more holistically about how we relate to the numbers in our banking account. How the Bible would have us relate to those numbers. Second, I will not say everything there is to say about money this morning. Um, This is one of those really special topics where there's a lot to say and there's a lot to nuance about what is being said as it's being said. Um, And I just can't say everything, so as Wesley said in uh, The Princess Bride, just get used to disappointment. There's going to be things I don't say. Um, (laughs) We'll have a lot more time to talk about money in the life of our church, so I can't do everything this morning. But with that being said, would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, you're so generous. You have richly blessed us in more ways than we can possibly imagine. Your vision, Lord Jesus, for the kingdom of God is full of treasure. Realign our hearts, woo us, like Proverbs says, with wisdom, with the kingdom of God, with true blessing, Order our lives this morning. Open us up. Free us from anxiety. Free us from idolatry. Where the spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And all God's people said, amen. Three main points about stewardship and money going off the ones from last week. Here's your first one. Sorry, I didn't give you a a cool outline this week. I didn't get that far. Um, Number one, as stewards... We have God-given dominion over our money, but our money is not ours. Let me say that again. As stewards, we have God-given dominion over our money, but our money is not ours. More than anything else, that simple truth is what distinguishes a Christian view of money from all other views of money. And it is the fountainhead for everything else that we're going to say this morning. Your money is not yours. It's God's money. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell therein. Everything was created by God. Anything you have was given to you by God. God. And that includes your wallet. That includes all those numbers in your bank account. Now, let me address the pushback, because I think it as I say it, right? We think that's a really nice theological anecdote. That's a really pious thing to say as a pastor on stage. I get it as an idea, but like, come on, man, like I go to a job, I work really hard, and I get paid for my money, and it's like my money. It's impossible for us to not immediately think that. I don't know if you're thinking about that. I think that, all right? And we as Americans are particularly wired to think that. The American dream is for who? Those who work really hard. People who have money are people who have earned it. Think of the musical Hamilton. Hamilton grows up in squalor. He has no opportunities, but how does he make his money? By working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter, right? I could go on, thank you. Nailed it. All right. With that in mind, flip with me and your bullets into De- Deuteronomy. Man, I nailed the timing of that. This is good, right? Gosh. Oh my goodness, Deuteronomy eight. You guys there? Beware. Watch out. Be so careful. Lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. And he goes on to say, so be really careful because if you forget this, you will surely perish. Do you feel the intensity in his words? In other words, you have money, but however you got it, God gave you the means If you grew up in an affluent family that gave you opportunities, that was God's grace. You did not choose which family to be born into. If you didn't grow up with opportunities, but like Hamilton, you were really smart and you worked really hard, who gave you the facility to work hard and be smart and be shrewd and make money when so others didn't? That's the grace of God. There's nothing you possess that doesn't ultimately go back to the creator, and that's why Moses is pleading with Israel. Don't forget that truth. But that's only half of the coin, right? This is why stewardship is so beautiful. The other truth is this. God has given you dominion over it. He's put you in charge of it. He's empowered you. He's delegated with you with the authority to have ownership of it under him in his name. So we are all like estate managers. We're like financial investors that a wealthy king, a wealthy person has entrusted us with money to have dominion over, to do stuff with. Now, like I said before, this is the most important truth about stewardship and money. Christian stewardship of money is not just about giving. Lots of people give. Christians don't have the share of the market on philanthropy at all. Lots of people are generous. Christian stewardship is not just about being wise and responsible with our money and not being, you know, not squandering it or being greedy with it. Lots of people do that. First and foremost, it is about, in the deep places of our heart, having a posture towards money that it's not ours. It's the king's. Amen? A.W. Tozer puts it like this, and I love this, and I want to give you a phrase of his that Is a gift, and that we'll use throughout the rest of the sermon. He says this when he's talking about Abraham and all the stuff that Abraham had. Quote, I've said that Abraham possessed nothing. Yet was not this poor man rich? Everything he had owned before, before he started following the Lord, was still his to enjoy. Sheep, camels, herds, the goods of every sort. He also had his wife and his friends. Best of all, he had his son Isaac safe by his side. He had everything but he possessed nothing. There is the spiritual secret. There is the sweet theology of the heart, which can be learned only in the school of renunciation. The sweet theology of the heart. On the outside, it looks like Abraham was a wealthy man. He had everything. He possessed nothing. Now, even though this is fundamentally a heart posture, it, com- it does all boil down to that sweet theology of the heart where you understand that truth. There was proof of this sweet theology of the heart in the life of Israel. Um, in our sin, our, our default is gonna be to assume ownership of things, to squat on our money and, and think it's ours, that it's not God's. But God's grace and spiritual disciplines help us to unclench our hands off of it and to remember what Moses is trying to get the Israelites to remember. There was a lot in Israel's life that helped them remember this truth where it wasn't just an abstract idea, but it kind of played itself out in their life. Some of those were tithes, first fruit offerings. By the way, there was a lot of tithes. There wasn't just one tithe. Um, But my favorite is the redemption system. So let me geek out a little bit on an Old Testament idea. Before the Exodus, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt regardless of how familiar you are with the Bible, most of you know this or have seen the Prince of Egypt, right? The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, which meant they and everything they had belonged to whom? Pharaoh. In the Exodus, the Bible says, God redeems Israel from the house of slavery, which is to say, by the blood of the Lamb of the Passover and by the death of the firstborn of Egypt, there was a transfer of ownership. The word redeem is purchase language. Yahweh says, I have redeemed you from the house of Israel. You no longer belong to Pharaoh, now you're mine. And so a law was put in place after the Exodus to remind the Israelites of this truth that they were the Lord's. And it was that every firstborn animal had to be offered to the Lord. So if a donkey has its first donkey, Baby, what's a donkey, baby? I don't know. Uh, they, they offered it to the Lord. And every firstborn son had to be purchased back from God by the family or, to use the language, redeemed. Now, it's a weird practice. It's an interesting practice that they had to do this. But Exodus 13 explicitly says that God put this law in place so that kids would one day ask, Hey, Mom and Dad, why on the earth are we doing this? Why did this little donkey just go to the temple and why did we have to buy back our eldest son? Exodus 13 says, the point is so that they'll ask that question and then mom and dad can say, what? Ah, I'm so glad you asked. We were slaves in Egypt. We belonged to Pharaoh. Everything we had was his. We were abused and we lived in bondage. But Yahweh redeemed us. Now we're his. Do you see how their life and their financial practices bore witness to the sweet theology of the heart? So here's a question, self-reflection question. Does your life, does your checking account bear witness to that truth? Is there anything in your life, and I'm not saying this to be judgmental, this is just for us to think about, is there anything in your life that would make your kids or your friends say, Why do you do that? Or does it bear witness to something else? Because guess what? You too have been redeemed. Amen? By the blood of the Lamb, by the death of the firstborn, you've been redeemed. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God. As stewards, we have God-given dominion over our money. Oh, what dignity, but it's not ours. Oh, what humility. Once that sweet theology of the heart is in place, what do we do with it? Remember last week we said a steward does two things. First, a steward preserves what they have dominion over. The, the, you serve it, you guard it, you keep that garden going, you don't let rabbits attack it. Second, a steward grows what they're given dominion over. So you're fruitful, you multiply it. Now I want to apply those two truths to money applying the first principle, that kind of preserve principle to our financial resources, we can say this. Here's number two, your second point. As stewards, we are called to be wise managers of our money. Sorry, let me say this. We are called to be wise managers of God's money. (laughs) Important uh, distinction, I'll say that again. As stewards, we are called to be wise managers of God's money. Stewards are meant to be attentive, watchful caretakers of what they're in charge of that means with the money that god has entrusted to us we should be shrewd managers of it and be careful with it so individually it means we don't just throw it away we don't squander it recklessly we also don't just sit on it as a church it means we don't just and i'm going to qualify this we don't just trust the holy spirit with our church's finances and just think really recklessly with it we do trust the holy spirit <laughs> Of course we do, we believe in the sweet theology of the heart, and yet, through the commendation of scripture, we also get together and think really strategically, and critically, and wisely, and generously with our money. This is what stewards do. And those of us in the church who are particularly called to steward the church's financial resources, which is our vestry, our parish council, what we're getting, that's a gift. People who can think wisely about the church's money There are many places in scripture that we could go to, and I'm not going to spend long on this point, um, that talk about this truth, but nowhere really is as, as beautiful as the book of Proverbs. Um, Proverbs talks about the wisdom of being generous with money, why it's wise, about economic systemic justice with money, talks about helping the poor, talks about paying off debts, planning for the future, for more. And what Proverbs is trying to do is to teach wisdom and so Christians should be known for their wisdom with money, not for greed, not for recklessness or cluelessness or childishness with money. If somebody pulled back the veil of the church, they should find wisdom. And I think that wisdom should be compelling. To give you an example, I had a friend one time who was a pretty high-powered businessman. He was on a train heading to London, and he got in this like first-class cabin with another guy who was even wealthier than him and over all these companies and stuff, and he, my friend was reading the Bible, and the guy said, ooh, I love the Bible. Oh, cool, are you a Christian? No, but I read it every day. And he said, huh, why? He said, well, I based my whole business on the book of Proverbs. The guy was like, what? And he said he just reads Proverbs every single day, and every single, all of his business choices, everything he's done, he's just based on the book of Proverbs, which is amazing, I worked for Apple for a long time. I thought it was fascinating that all of my coworkers, not all of them, but a good chunk of them, were doing Dave Ramsey's envelope system and were following Dave Ramsey's financial practices. And a lot of them weren't even Christians. There's just a wisdom to think carefully with money that blesses everybody. Christian stewards are to be wise with the money that God has given them dominion over. We're stewards, we take care of it. But that's not all, right? We aren't just wise. Remember, stewards aren't just maintenance managers, they're creators, they're dreamers, entrepreneurs, developers, artists. Stewards are called to be fruitful and to multiply and that means with our money, we're not just called to be wise and careful with it, we're called to do something with it. Like an investor managing a wealthy person's account um, if you give a financial investor, whatever you call him, your money, their job is not just to not lose it. Their job is to grow it, right? But not as the world grows it or seeks to invest their money. So here's our third point. We have to really dig into this. This is, this is really good. Number three, as stewards, we're called to invest God's money to grow kingdom wealth. As stewards, we're called to invest God's money to grow kingdom wealth. Third point. In other words, Christian stewards are called to use the money God has given them to invest it to get rich towards God, to amass vast, heaping quantities of wealth in the kingdom of God. And here's where we need to do some serious Bible study. So turn with me to Luke 12. If you're at home and you're watching, uh, please turn with me in the bulletin. If you don't have a bulletin, grab a Bible if you have one, and turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Everybody there? Start with me in verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, man, what shall I do? I got nowhere to store all my stuff. And he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get bigger barns to hold all my stuff. Verse 19, and I will say to my soul, soul, don't you love how he addresses his soul in the, you know, Now, look down at verse 30. All the nations of the world seek after these things, worldly riches. Your Father knows you need them. Instead, Jesus is saying, Here's what I want you to do seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your, will your heart be also. Such a rich teaching. I obviously did not even read everything that I could have in this beautiful passage, but two principles in this that I want to highlight that are really clear in Jesus' teaching. The first principle is this. There are two types of wealth. There's worldly wealth, there's kingdom wealth. Jesus says you can be rich on earth or you can be rich towards God. You can have treasure in barns. You can have treasure in bank accounts. You can also, according to Jesus, have treasure in heaven, which you can invest in and compound with kingdom interest right now. Here's the second principle, which Jesus makes really clear there are two types of pursuits. The pursuit of earthly wealth, of one of those, or the pursuit of kingdom wealth. You can seek after and invest in and grow your wealth on earth. You can also seek after and invest in and seek to grow your wealth in the kingdom. And Jesus is crystal clear elsewhere. Both of those can exist at the same time. However, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve money and God. At the bottom of your heart, there will be a chief pursuit. And Jesus, like Proverbs, wants to teach us wisdom. He wants to show us the path of wisdom with these things. So he shows us the picture of a fool who invested in his earthly treasure, who spent his life as a steward just growing and growing and growing his earthly wealth with which God had blessed him, but he never invested in the kingdom. He neglected heavenly riches. He was an earthly tycoon. He was a heavenly pauper. And when he died, his foolishness was revealed. His earthly wealth became worthless in an instant. And he had no eternal, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading treasure awaiting him. Now, here's where I do need to caveat some things. Is earthly wealth wrong in and of itself? The Bible is clear, no it's not. But the Bible is also really clear that wealth is always dangerous. It's always dangerous. And pursuing it for its own sake is always a tragic, foolish, suffocating endeavor. And Jesus wants to spare you from that. He's trying to free you from that path. He wants to warn you to not walk down that path. And in its place, Jesus shows us the path of wisdom, which is the pursuit of riches in heaven. Jesus is saying, listen, the world is my father's. He has everything. He's rich. He also loves you. He knows what you need. So, don't be anxious about your possessions or your money. Don't spend all your time trying to grow your earthly wealth. Remember the fool. Pursue the kingdom. Get rich towards God. Invest in heaven. Your Father loves to give you the kingdom, it's His pleasure. So, seek it first, grow it above all else. Everything else will work itself out. So, there's one type of wealth that ulti- ultimately matters. That's kingdom wealth. There's one pursuit that should rule our lives, and that is growing that treasure, growing the garden of God, growing the kingdom. And the connection to stewardship comes in because Jesus here with give your money away, give to the poor, and the Bible elsewhere commends us to employ our earthly wealth to grow kingdom wealth, to use one to serve the other and this is the pearl of great price a man takes everything he has and he gives all of it to get the pearl of great price and nowhere is this more beautifully pictured i think than in our first timothy reading so flip with me to first timothy really quick the connections between first timothy 6 and luke 12 are astonishing Uh, It could have a whole sermon series on just how those two things are are playing out. And I think Paul is actually writing an exposition off of Luke 12. And again, I can't read all of it, but look at verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice how similar this is to Jesus' parable, right? Notice how death reveals the trivial nature of earthly wealth. Notice how he's not saying wealth itself is evil. He does not say that in this passage despite all the warnings. He says the desire to be rich on earth is really, really bad and dangerous. You don't want to do that. And he says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. But now look at verse 17 and see what he says to stewards who actually have been blessed with a lot of earthly wealth. As for the rich in this present age, charge them, Not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be what? Rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, what? Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And he is not talking about earthly treasure and earthly barns. So what does he say to those of us who have earthly wealth? First he says, get your sweet theology of the heart right. You notice how he starts in saying like, don't set your hope on riches, shift things around. And then he says, now take your, what God has blessed you with and do stuff with it. Get rich in good works. And what does Paul say will happen? You will store up treasure in heaven. Instead of your barns getting full on earth, the barns in heaven are gonna get full. The point is this. As stewards, we are called to invest our money to grow the kingdom. God has empowered us with freedom and creativity to use our financial resources to grow his garden and to advance his kingdom. It's an amazing truth. Two other caveats I need to make here. This is not the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is that you invest your earthly wealth in the kingdom in order to get greater earthly wealth. You sow a seed in heaven for an earthly, you know, your income's gonna increase. That is not what this is teaching. Do you see that's true? That's not what I'm saying. The reward for investing in the kingdom is the kingdom. Amen? The man invested all of his money to buy the pearl of great price, not so that he could use the pearl to get more money. He gave everything away so he had the pearl. Hear me, this is also not asceticism. Asceticism says all financial blessing and wealth on earth is evil. We don't believe that. Some people are gifted in business, some people are born blessed, and they have it their whole life. The Bible does not chastise them for that. The Bible does not say investing earthly money wisely to grow it is wrong in and of itself. It just exhorts them to be extremely careful not to set their hope on it and to do stuff with it for the kingdom, to give it away. Behind every ministry I've ever served in, and I have like had no salary for years before or like barely a salary or I've lived off of fundraising for over a decade of my life, Behind every single ministry I've ever been a part of, including this church, there have been people who were blessed with earthly wealth and business who funded and were rich towards God with what they did. Jesus himself depended on the giving of other people who were wealthy. Paul planted churches off the basis of Lydia, a woman who was really successful in her own town. So we are not teaching the prosperity gospel. We're also not teaching asceticism. Now, how does one practically do this? Okay, I'm a steward. I have my resources. I can use it to grow the kingdom, to grow the garden of God. One of the books I've been reading this week, just to think about this stuff, is by the New Testament scholar, Craig Blomberg. He wrote a book called Christians in the Age of Wealth, and it's a biblical theology of basically what the Bible teaches about money and stewardship and all this stuff, and it's been really helpful. And he says there are three main purposes of giving that come out of the sweep of biblical theology and church history. So basically three main buckets of investment in the kingdom that come out of the Bible. The first one is giving to the poor. This is the most commanded investment towards Christians in the scriptures, is for those of us to share with those of us who have less than us, to alleviate the suffering of the poor. It's right there in Luke 12. Notice that's how Jesus ends his whole thing, is give to the needy. It's right there in 1 Timothy Hey, if you have a uh, financial blessing on earth, give to the poor. Christians give their money to those who are in need, and that is always growing the kingdom. And Jesus explicitly ties that back to serving Him, right? What you do to the least of these, you've done to me. So, Christians, we, we love investing our money and our financial resources to bless those who have less than us. Second is supporting your local congregation and local ministers. And I'm not just saying that because I'm one of them, it's in the Bible. As a steward, one of the ways you grow the garden of God is by investing and in supporting your local iteration of that garden, which is the church. We're going to talk more about that next week. Next week isn't all about giving to the church, but it will involve, what is it? What, how do we feel about giving to the church? But that is one of the common themes in the New Testament. The third one is just funding missions and evangelism in general, wherever you feel called to support it. So, uh, wherever it is happening, wherever you feel called to it, could be church to church. We see that in the New Testament a lot. Could be supporting somebody that's doing a work way far away. Could be all kinds of different things. These are all opportunities for us to take our resources we've been entrusted with and deploy them to grow God's garden as stewards. The New Testament is not concerned with percentages, how much we should give. It's not clear on delegating to you where and how you need to give to those things. The New Testament is concerned with us being lavishly generous and with our generosity flowing from joy, from freedom, from delight, and ultimately from that fountainhead of the sweet theology of the heart. This is God's, He provides for me, He's given me everything in the gospel. Oh my gosh, I want to bless other people. So let me t- tie all this together with a story. Um, I spent a summer in India with YWAM, which is a parachurch mi- uh, missions ministry, uh, when I was in my 20s. And I raised support to go on that trip. I spent like three, two or three months there. Um, and I needed plane tickets and I needed to survive while I was there. So I went around to people and I asked them to raise money. And I needed about $3,000, $4,000 to do the whole summer and the whole thing, including flights and trips and everything. And I ended up raising about 7000 which was really awesome. So I had this surplus. So I paid for my tickets, and I did all my stuff. And then I had this chunk of money left over. And I was so thrilled because I got to use that money to go over to India and just ask God, what do you want me to do with this? I had been entrusted with that chunk of change, and there I was in a place where there was a lot of need, and I just got to live into the joy of giving it. And do you know what I felt? Dignity and humility. Responsibility. Oh, God gave me this money. I'm not throwing this away. And also creativity and freedom. It had been entrusted to me, but I was going to give that somewhere. And I prayed. I followed the Holy Spirit's guidance of where I felt like he was directing me to give it. And I blessed people with that money while I was in India. It was so fun. Now, here's the question. What's the difference between that $3,000 and all the rest of the money that I had at that time? Not much. Do you see what I'm saying? Why should I have felt that way about the 3000 and not about everything else God had given me? All our money is God's. As stewards, we're called to manage it wisely, to invest it, to grow and expand the kingdom of God. And so thinking about money as a Christian should not feel fear-based, shouldn't feel anxiety-based. Even in context of church, we should never feel like there's like a neediness or a gropingness. There's no anxiety in the kingdom of God when we relate with money, amen? There's no anxiety. Oh, we have the joy of children who are blessed. We have the joy of stewards who get to think creatively to invest in the kingdom. So I'm gonna have Maddie come back up and we're gonna respond. Uh, We're gonna sing our offertory now. Um, But let me just pray for us as we respond in worship. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your blessing to us. Lord, there are so many pitfalls when it comes to money. There's so much need. There's so much suffering for people who have too little. There's so much potential for idolatry. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would minister to us the sweet theology of the heart. Would you give us the joy, Lord, of investing in the kingdom, of richly blessing those just as you have richly blessed us. And we pray for our church that as we lay a foundation for how we think about money, Lord, keep us from all ditches. And Lord, we pray that we would approach our financial resources as a church, as individuals in a way that glorifies you and is commensurate with the gospel. And we pray all this